The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Hi everyone, I'm Thomas Senderho, and you're listening to The Secrets of Blade Runner 2049, Denis Villeneuve's sequel to the 1982 sci-fi classic, and I'd argue a classic in its own right. Uh, joining me tonight are uh, is another Thomas. Uh, we promise that neither of us are actually replicants. Uh, Thomas Salerno. Hi, Thomas. Hey there, Thomas. We missed that joke last time, and Dom was like, you have to make sure you yes. get the replicant comment in there. <laughs> And also joining me tonight is uh, Jack Barazzini. Hi, Jack. How's it going? It's going great. I um, man, I have been excited for this one, and uh, I was I was super excited with this. I, I'm going to start off before we get too far into this conversation. If you have not watched this film, we are going to spoil the heck out of it. And while normally that's not a big deal, with this film it is. I really feel like this film is one that uh, it's not like it's a big, huge plot twist, but you ruin a lot of the mood of the movie. If you know the end before you get into it. So mm-hmm. if you haven't watched it, it's on Netflix right now. I was super happy that it was on Netflix. so I could go watch it without having to pay an arm and a leg for it, even though even though I'm going to go buy it. You know, I know I'm going to go buy it, but still <laughs> it's streaming on Netflix. So go watch it and then come back and enjoy the podcast after you've watched it. This is your last warning. We're going to spoil the heck out of it. <laughs> so, um, you know, this I think this is like my fourth time watching this one. I saw it in theaters the day it came out. Uh, I saw it another time in theaters because it was just so amazing uh i had to go a second time and see it uh this was my wife's first time watching it with me so she didn't go with me either i don't know how i went to the movies without her twice to go see this one but this is like my fourth time um how many how many times have you guys seen this one at this point i've seen it twice now twice okay yeah i actually missed this one in theaters this is my first time watching it was preparing for this show awesome okay cool yeah i um i I, we were talking before the show and we were you know comparing the two um as you should never do with such great films but uh we both i think we all kind of agreed that we love the first one we love the 1982 movie it was great movie but this movie's really good like even arguably better and so after having waited, you know, two decades for a follow up to you know, not ever expecting anything from the first one, going to the going to see this one in the theater, I was just blown away. I I loved it. I really did. I, I, I would say that this is a better film, honestly. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's just because the film has come so far and and so much leeway was given for it. So uh, what do you guys think? Same kind of sense. Yeah, I definitely would say that this is the better of the two movies and that doesn't that's not taking away from the original at all because the original is great. And without that, you wouldn't have this movie, but I almost feel like this movie was the movie that Ridley Scott would have made if he'd had the leeway and the budget to, because this movie takes all the core concepts from the original and builds upon them in a way that doesn't feel like it's just rehashing it for a nostalgia tie in. Like it expands the universe. It does in a very organic and interesting way. And I think it also does it in a way where you could watch this movie without having seen the original and it's still a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely should yeah. see it beforehand just because of the stuff that ties in. But I think you could go into this movie without having seen the original and you'd still be able to know what's going on. 
Yeah, I, I agree with everything that Jack said. I, I really thought that that this was one of those sequels that instead of taking away from the original movie, really builds on it, builds up the lore and the universe and explores the 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 themes that the original movie did in a in an even deeper and even more compelling way. Yeah, I just like I'm I'm sad that I missed it in theaters, but the, the only mm-hmm. reason I didn't see it in theaters is because I hadn't seen the first one yet and I was worried I might be missing a lot of yeah. stuff. But I, I think Jack's right. I think you can watch this movie on its own and it still works. They they kind of explain to you everything you need to know. And so, yeah, I, I definitely think mm-hmm. that as as a piece of, of science fiction cinema and in as, as a piece of cinema generally, this is mm-hmm. a fantastic movie in every way. A re- right. real kudos to... Uh, to a Denny Villeneuve once again mm-hmm. for <laughs> impressing me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I'm I I think you know we 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 have done the secrets of, of Dune, and that's uh, that's one that I'm really heavily involved in as well. And I was worried about the, you know hearing that that was coming out, and I didn't really know Denny Villeneuve very well at that point. Um, you know, I, I actually have never seen Arrival to be honest. Oh, you <laughs> never, sure. I, so I need to, I need to yeah. go watch it because uh, just because I, I know now who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was watching this movie in theaters that I was like, oh, okay, I am not at all concerned because this guy knows how to do his stuff. And I, I think that Dune, Dune is going to be fine in his hands. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that was, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I, and I really, I would love to hear the perspective of someone who has seen this movie, uh, but did not see the first one. And maybe hasn't still or, or watched the first one after having seen mm-hmm. uh, this one. I'd love to see what, what that perspective is, because it does. I feel like it's a very self-encapsulated story. But some of the questions that it asks, it starts in the middle of asking them. And I feel like that's a, uh, that's something that the, the, the first movie opened the box and this mm-hmm. movie just pries it open further and says, OK, we're not done with any of this stuff. We, we just started scratching the surface and just kind of pulls it the rest of the way open and just starts asking even bigger questions and uh, gets deeper and deeper with them. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think the beautiful thing about this movie too, and uh, you guys tell me if, if, how you feel about this. I'm really struck by the pacing of it because it's nearly three hours. Never feels like it gets mm. slow, but never rushes to anything like it. it yeah, no, it's so well paced. <laughs> Yeah, and I I love that's like one of my favorite things about this. Like, this is my ideal kind of movie. I like big, slow movies that aren't they don't feel bogged down. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess Ridley Scott, um, one comment he made about this movie was he thought it was good, but it could have they could have cut a half an hour out of it and it still would have been good. And Mm -hmm. I absolutely disagree with that. I like that you get like these big establishing shots, these slow scenes. Like, I love long cuts in scenes and just how every it doesn't feel rushed like so many movies nowadays are so frenetic like Mm -hmm. this is kind of like this is the opposite of like the star wars marvel like over the top it's like explosions everything at something has to be happening every single minute it's just it lets you take in the universe and take in the world and it's just a it's like a beautifully made movie Mm -hmm. yeah and like when when even when apparently nothing is happening on screen i'm still captivated just by like right. the cinematography and the music and just what 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 is being shown in frame is just beautiful. So 
you know, even in those slow moments, it's never like, oh, this is dull or like nothing of interest is happening. No, like, mm-hmm. he, you know, and and I felt like in in that way, it was kind of similar to the first movie because the first movie also did that. It would have, <clears throat> you know, long shots, at, at least in the cut of the first movie that I saw, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I felt that this sequel did that even better. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think the moment you really see it in this movie is the moment where he's in the the furnace room and going to find the toy. Oh, and if you yeah. watch that scene, like you are building the, the anticipation, you know, he's going to find it, right? You know, you, mm-hmm. you know that that's what, that's what this is leading to, but just him walking and it takes him several different shots mm-hmm. to walk through that corridor. And it's not a long corridor. Like it's one of those things where that's definitely like, uh, at least 30 seconds worth of film that could have been just sliced and because mm-hmm. we know where he's going he goes there and he does it but that anticipation that builds and the tension that you feel while you're walking with him to that point is so good and um there's just so many so many shots like that there's so many moments like that in this film where you're there they're, the two characters are staring at each other just breathing mm-hmm. and and it's it, you need it <laughs> Yeah, no, it it's it's got that there's like a tense feeling throughout the movie, but it never feels forced. Um, even just like with the opening shot, like it's just it's a dude harvesting his his grubs in his farm and mm-hmm. very slow paced, just building up to that. And even the action scenes in this movie are they're very subdued and they don't feel just stuck in there. Like mm-hmm. one of my principal gripes with most movies nowadays is um, and I like I like the Marvel movies fine. Like I don't I'm not trying to hate on them or anything. But my favorite parts of the Marvel movies are the character parts. Like once they mm-hmm. get into the we're yeah. gonna destroy a city for 20 minutes, that's the part I want to skip over. Oh, I I wholeheartedly agree there too. Yeah, I think that they do they do make some interesting characters, and it would be great to see more of this kind of building of mm-hmm. of who they are and what they're about. Um, and so. I have to admit that in my notes, I'm totally going to gloss over him. So I don't want to skip the the opening replicant that we get to see is Sapper Morton, who's played by Dave Bautista. And he does like this. This just shows his range as an actor, because you go mm-hmm. from this yeah. is almost immediately after Guardians of the Galaxy. So you've got this picture of Drax in your head, right? And you go to this guy. He's playing the same meathead guy, but in a such a completely different way. Mm-hmm. and and gives the background of that of that character so well and, and i love that scene where where um k comes in to retire him and k really doesn't want to and you feel that mm-hmm. but you also feel that you know sapper can't let him just take him in because there's there's more going on there right yeah i totally got the the idea that sapper is like this ex-soldier mm-hmm. who like has now you know, as 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 he says to Kay, I've seen a miracle, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's changed him. But he's still in there. He's still a guy who can take you out and wreck yeah, you because right. he's an ex-super soldier. You know, like it, it, he, he was just great in that scene. And I, I always like seeing Dave Bautista in stuff. And I'm glad he's in Dune as well. And mm-hmm. I, it was a nice surprise seeing him here. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I guess he's he's been quoted as saying that he's glad that Denis uh, Valu has let him be in these kind of roles because he does not want to get typecast as the Drax type character. Like he wants right. to actually be able to play a range of characters. Mm-hmm. 
And he does. He brings such good, yeah. like he's, he's got such good stage presence, especially opposite such incredible actors. You know, it's it's really uh, incredible to see him. So yeah. But before we get to talking spoilers and to kind of breaking down the themes of the of the film, the last thing that I really want to touch on is the music because um, you know just just this year we've lost Vangelis, who was the uh, the the music uh, director for the original film. And he didn't work on this one. He wasn't involved in the music for this one. This one was Hans Zimmer and um, and another collaborator. And um, but they they do such a brilliant job of giving that tribute to the original mm-hmm. score without just directly copying it, yeah. except yeah. in important places, except like for very significant moments they do port it over. And then the other thing that I wanted to bring up too was like the the Wallace core uh, ringtone that pops up do you guys recognize that one do you know what that's from no oh, man yeah i i remember looking it up it's not peter and the wolf because that's what i it is oh okay, it is actually that's it, peter yes. and the wolf. yep yeah so it which is which is a great like it's this russian uh kids uh symphony that tells a story of this little boy and kind of this very antique story where he's uh he's like saves a duck from him well he doesn't mm-hmm. actually save the duck the duck dies but uh he he manages to trap this wolf who was uh attacking his house and uh then goes on parade with it and everything it's really it's a neat story if you ever get a chance to listen to it but it was it was fun hearing that very playful tone in the midst mm-hmm. of all this like really high drama and that being the marker for knowing that uh, Kay was a customer of the Wallace Corporation. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, most people would probably recognize that from uh, I think they use it in Christmas Story. It's like the layout motif they use for the bully. Oh, oh, it might be. Yeah, because it's because it's the wolf uh, thing. Because that's true. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go look that up now too. But yeah, that's it's it's a instantly recognizable piece. But then at the same time, yeah. it's kind of like you know just the <laughs> thrown in there as this <laughs> this thing that's very it's very jarring and very different from everything else that we're hearing mm-hmm. in, in the low tones and the very subdued uh, background music to suddenly have this you know ringtone pop through and it it gets your attention every single time it plays. So yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so we're, we're at the point where I think uh, we're going to talk spoilers. So before we get there, uh, I'd like to take a moment to, to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of movies and TV, uh, especially Maureen, Suzanne S., Adam S., Dan W., and Joshua D. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of movies and TV and all the shows here at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So if you haven't had anything spoiled yet and you still haven't watched the movie, <laughs> go do it now because we're about to like ruin it for you. <laughs> um, so I, I like to approach these the, these podcasts in the sense of talking about the themes that the movie presents. And this movie is so similar to the first one in a lot of the themes that it presents. But it's so different mm-hmm. and it's it's subtly different and it's beautiful for that. But but all of the themes that it presents have a lot of the same weight and it really even add to the the density of what the first one was approaching. So you have Wallace, who's overreaching, uh, dangerously overreaching in his uh, advance of science. Uh, you have the LAPD who's kind of like holding back the flood of uh 
what could be what's possible and just keeping that line between the worlds as uh as the lieutenant says that there's a wall and if you mm-hmm. let anybody know that there's not a wall <laughs> then you're gonna have a war and then our blade runner in this one is actually as a lot of people speculate from the first movie a lot of people wonder if deckard was a uh, a replicant well we actually have a replicant blade runner in this movie mm-hmm. I, I don't right. know i don't know that they ever refer to him as a blade runner but that's clearly what he is he's he's the, going the to opening retire crawl, replicants. i think does doesn't oh it? yeah okay yeah yeah i think you're right yeah so it tells us a little bit about the the history of uh the blackout and things like that mm-hmm. um so yeah i i love that it's it's playing on some of the themes from the first movie and and some of the 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 thoughts that people had about the first movie and kind of giving us that idea of like a, a replicant going to retire replicants. But then it is, it is like a totally different world than the original movie. And that's explained kind of in the lore itself where there was this big blackout and then everything came back. And I have to ask the question, did you guys watch any of the between material that was produced? Oh, no, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't that. know there was any action. Uh-huh, uh-huh. There, there are some shorts that are really good uh, kind of preview material for Blade Runner 2049. So I was so hyped about this movie when it came out that I was like every single thing that came out, I was watching. Right. <laughs> nice. So there was there was some stuff about Wallace core and who Wallace was and how he came to be. There were a couple of shorts that showed the blackout and the effects that it had. Um I have looked around and tried to find them anywhere and I can't. So I'm hoping I'm, I'm going to get a special edition of 2049 when I buy it. And I'm hoping that all of that stuff is included as part of the bonus material. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I was, I was really kind of surprised that Netflix didn't have it all kind of bundled in, you know, as an extra for the movie. I'm actually going to check. Um, we'll do this live. Uh, while um <laughs> Because I got it on iTunes and it has all the iTunes extras, and I'm ah. I want to see if it has those listed as the extras because I want to watch those if it does. Yeah, I hope it does because they were they were really good, like they were really interesting, and they they filled in a lot of these gaps. Like, okay, so what happened? It does. So right, if you excellent. get it on iTunes, it has 2022 blackout, 2036 nexus on, and 2048 nowhere to run. There you go. Okay, those are the ones. Yep. Uh, cool. Yeah. Off to watch those. Yeah. Yeah. It's, if you can find them, uh, find, check them out because they are they're really good. Because I love lore stuff. Anything that yeah. builds up the universe, I really like. Oh, you get some good ones out of this, and you know, I mean, I think I, I, I I'm a guy who likes I like lore to be to be subtle and to be hinted at. So inside yes. of the inside of the movie itself, and they do a really good job in this one of just kind of poking at it like we see wallace in like three scenes i think and Mm -hmm. uh that's and but we get we know enough about him through those three scenes to know that there's a lot more going on there and that that's such a cool way to present characters one question i had and i'd like to get both of your guys take on this maybe i was wondering is wallace himself a replicant Mm. like i i wasn't sure through watching this movie like just i don't know something about him like i i know he's blind but i know i know he and he has those implants on the back of his head that like mm-hmm. they, they show in one scene and the way he's talking about like having replicants go out into the galaxy and like settle planets and stuff and kind of take over i'm like 
So is he a replicant, you know, is or is he just a human who wants to use replicants for his purposes? I, well, let's let's start there. So that's yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. what I was going to kind of do is break down the movie into into the characters that that we see and the relationships that they have, because I think that mm. really shows the themes of the movie. So let's start with Wallace and love, because I think yeah. those two are kind of inextricable. And um, I, I think the best scene for Wallace is the one where uh, there's the freshly birthed replicant that kind of falls out mm-hmm. of the, the birthing canal and he's analyzing her and she's not perfect she is perfect right she, she's a replicant so obviously she's perfect but she's not what he's shooting for which is this idea of domination of of something that can give birth and can continue to create itself and so you really see this image of him wanting to be god mm-hmm. and yeah and and his angel he even refers to her as his angel is there with him and that's love you know standing beside him like watching this proceeding so how'd you guys feel about that scene because i think that's a really intense and very complicated scene to watch yeah it's 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 a very affecting scene it's very creepy and it's done in a very subtle way like it's not over the top um just the way they're treating this being as a thing and it's you know she's just been birthed and she doesn't really have a concept of what's going on. Mm-hmm. They're just this very materialistic, uh, mechanical view of everything. And he, he believes he can control everything. And the one thing he can't control is actually creating new life naturally. And that's what really sticks in his craw. It seems like. Yeah, it was, it was a very, very unsettling scene, but it's, it's kind of a really good introduction to Wallace as a character because it basically tells you what, it gives you an idea of what his angle is, you mm-hmm. know, and what his worldview is and how he views, you know, his relationships with other characters and also just replicants in general. Like, like you said, Jack, he views them as just, just kind of objects, you know, even though they are basically humans. Like I kept thinking about that throughout the movie that, you know, okay, they're born in a test tube and not in a womb, but there's, literally nothing that makes them different from a human biologic, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it was, it's just unsettling to see humans used in this way. And, but then the odd thing about that is, is that Wallace refers to them all as his children, right? right? Like he, he really does mm-hmm. have this sense that he is birthing them, that, 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 and, but in, in almost this proprietary way, right? Where he's, taken the negative attributes that you could think of and relate to God, right. Of like God, the creator, but then is aloof and, and views us as, as broken and, and worthless. Right. And so if you, mm-hmm. if you only took that perspective of God, you would end up with this kind of Wallace figure and he, he wants more for them, but he wants more for them, not, for their sake, but for his, for this for his, sense yeah. of conquest and of right. reaching he's out. A, he, right. He's a father in the way that uh, Saturn is a father. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Very much right. so. Right. For mythology. Yeah. And, and I think the blindness is such a good metaphor that, you know, he's blind, but he's overcome the blindness with this technology. And right. yeah. that, that means he hasn't really learned anything from it. And he hasn't learned to be humble because of it. He hasn't learned how to how to overcome it. He's just 
fix the problem with a technological solution. So right. he's not a better person for being in that in that state. Which I, 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 he's such a and that's it's brilliant because he's such a complicated character and he's on on screen for you know five minutes out of and a three hour yeah. movie. You know? It's funny too, like his his relationship with love. You know, he he calls her his his angel over and over again. An angel, mm-hmm. as we know, means like messenger. Of mm-hmm. God, and she's kind of his messenger, and says like she she speaks for him, you know she she does the 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 dirty work that he doesn't want to mm-hmm. do, and in many ways she 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 kind of like is an instrument of his will, mm-hmm. essentially. She's she's not so much her own person as much as an instrument. You get this weird vibe between her and him, where it's almost like she you know it it feels like she hates him, almost like she. She hates him, but she loves him at the same time. Like she's stuck between those two. Right. Cause yeah, she seems repulsed by mm-hmm. some things that he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, watching the, watching him massacre this, you know, freshly born replicant. And then I think for her too, like you watch it a couple of times and, and you get this, and this, this movie you can watch like 20 times and still every single time you're going to get some new texture out of it and, and watching it, just from her perspective like every time she's on screen just think about from her perspective what she's going through she's watching this man that created her and refers to her as his angel kill another replicant just because it can't give birth and so even if she discovers this child the child is a mark of her failure right she can't be that she'll never be good enough for him and at the same time, like her, one of her final statements when she's uh, fighting with Kay is I'm the best. And right. like in this, in the sense that, you know, she's, she's proven that she's the best and like, like there was like, she needed to. Right. And, and that's the implication you get there is that she had, she had something that she had to prove and now she's proven it. And um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just so like, like the, the character's so deep and played really, really well as this aloof sort of emotionless but also uh very impacted by her own sense of what she's doing uh because we see especially the moment when she meets uh, lieutenant joshi and she is crying while she's murdering her right and that it, it's like you see the the contraposition of of what she's feeling about what she's doing and the fact that she still does it because it's her responsibility so yeah i i I am absolutely in awe of love and the way that she comes through in this film. Uh, I, I think that moving on from Wallace and kind of into her and the way that she relates to Kay, uh, because they are both replicants and they both we, we get back to that theme from the first movie we talked about where there was this question of purpose, like what is purpose and why do and, and is purpose important? And to these two, it obviously is like their purpose is very important for different reasons. Like love has completely embraced hers and Kay is. Struggles throughout the movie with whether or not he actually has one. And so as as we see him kind of given this idea of a greater purpose and then we see it taken away from him. uh, It's challenges him and it's such a uh, it's an interesting growth that he goes through because of that. Definitely. And it's interesting to see the way his search for his identity changes throughout the movie, like where he thinks mm-hmm. that maybe he is the child. And then, yeah. you know, later on, we learn the truth about that. 
um, and just how that shapes him as a character. Yeah, I was definitely on board with him as a character with K through the entire time, no matter what he's doing, no matter what he's feeling. I'm like, like, yeah, it just, he, he was a very effective protagonist. I just felt mm-hmm. like I was completely, you know, in, entranced with his story and I wanted to know where it was going to end and what, you know, what, what, what's next that's going to be revealed. You know, I was just on the edge of my seat the entire time, like, not knowing like okay wh- when are the tables going to be turned on us again right yeah because it starts out one way and then it moves to, you know so so I, I think moving moving along with k i think the, the relationship that he has with um with madam with lieutenant joshi is, is such a good indicator for how replicants are viewed because he has to go in for this baseline test every single time he comes back from a mission he has to go in for a baseline test that that checks where his mental state is and then he has to go into a debrief with her afterwards and she's she doesn't really know how to think about him you know so she's she's the chief of police she uses these replicants as uh, obviously as blade runners but she doesn't really know where to place him like is he someone i can befriend is he just this item you know is he just a tool in my in my tool belt or is he actually someone that i can connect with and you see that over and over again with her yeah no she's she's definitely played uh very well uh and you do get throughout the movie that the replicants are still looked down on and not mm-hmm. treated well um and then she's kind of got almost just like a very blase view towards him where she's going to treat him with respect i think probably just because that's what our human evolution is designed to do. If something looks human, we're going to treat it that way. But she still also is very utilitarian in her relationship with him and the struggles that she has with that. And also you just get that. She's, she's just so burnt out on everything that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Very, uh, the kind of, you know, cynical seen it all kind of cop. Yeah. And it is interesting. Um, I was apprehensive when I started this because Ryan Gosling is in the lead and I just associate him with like rom-coms and stuff, but he did a fantastic job in this movie. He was amazing. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. I, the, the, the weight that he brings to the character, the, the emotional range that he has for, because for a character that's supposed to be emotionless, everything's supposed to be really subtle. And for a guy coming from rom-coms where everything's kind of over the top all the time, right? <laughs> to bring that down to that level of subtlety and, but also give every single emotional movement that, that sense, like, you know, like you were saying, Thomas, where it's just, you're on board for everything he does. Like every single move he makes, you're like, okay yeah i can i totally see where you were going i I understand why you believe that that makes sense and and you never doubted him for a second as a narrator which is which is cool because he i I think there are a lot of uh of dubious uh characters in this story that we don't know you know that aren't telling the truth that are clearly lying obviously for good reason in many cases and for nefarious reasons in others but with K, you always get the sense that he's wearing his heart on his sleeve. And that what you see is what you get with him. That's just the way it is. So, yeah. And I think, um, I, I think my favorite scene with, between him and, uh, Lieutenant Joshi is the scene where she comes to his apartment and is, is drinking his, uh, 
his his alcohol and he asks so what happens if i finish that and he just kind of shrugs and she doesn't really know where to go with it like you know it's it's his alcohol and and if anybody didn't catch from the first one that's rare like it's real that's an ex- very expensive thing that he has is any kind oh, of alcohol right. yeah. very expensive so she's she's essentially saying you know like what happens if i take this last drop of this stuff that costs you probably a month's worth of wages he, he doesn't have a response to it so um we're gonna go into some of the the heavier hitting uh relationships now and uh Let's talk about Kay and Deckard, who is the returning character here. And I'm I'm saving. I I know this is this is one where you would think, oh, this is the big relationship, right? But I I really think that there are a couple of others that are more interesting that I'd like to get to later. So I'm going to push them off a little bit. But so Kay, uh, through his through his trip, he has to go and find. He ends up find having having to find Deckard. He doesn't know that it's Deckard. But he knows that it's someone related to this child that he's hunting down. And he ends up, I, I think it's Las Vegas that he ends up in. It's Vegas, yeah. yeah. Although I, I don't think they tell you that in the movie. I had to look it up. Yeah, well, I think they give you one like really quick clip when Love's looking through the computer and she sees where his transponder's coming from on his, on his police car. And it shows oh, like okay. it travels you know, east into essentially what the de- what's the desert. So you, you kind of guess that it's Las Vegas. And that's why, you know, you, with the the roulette tables and all that kind of stuff. But, right. Yeah. Right. And I think it's been a there was some sort of nuclear incident. So it's basically a dead zone and you're not supposed to go there. And you see all the mm-hmm. derelict uh, pageantry that, that they have. They're like, I really like the holographic Elvis that they have during the fight scene. Yes. Oh, that was great. <laughs> It was such a good juxtaposition and, and how it was broken up, like the, the sounds that it was making was sometimes it was there, but most of the time it wasn't. It was Perfect just, yeah. for like a gl- as a glitchy machine, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how technology breaks, you know? <laughs> there was yeah. realism to that. Oh, yeah. Well, and, th- and then we also get to see in that scene, we see how tough K is because, you know, like what? There's yeah. like three explosions that go off very close to him throughout that scene. And he's mostly unscathed by the end of it at least enough that you know he could be patched up and stuck back out there i really like that deckard wasn't introduced until the, like the third act mm-hmm. because like they easily could have done it a sequel where like you know deckard's through the whole thing and maybe that's what it certainly was not was what i was expecting was him to be in a lot of it and i was pleasantly surprised that yeah he's he's not until the third act of the movie you get you know ryan gosling's character k you know you get to follow him through you know the first what is it like you know a couple of hours you yeah, know before it's a you good two-thirds of the movie yeah that, that you got before before you get to deckard yeah and and deckard's exactly what you would expect of, yes. of deckard at this age and in the situation that he's in like i just have to be alive that's i have to i can't I can't not yeah, be alive, and so I, I love how, how Kay asks him, "Is is that a real dog?" Because like Deckard <laughs> has a dog, and Deckard's like, "I don't know, ask him." You know, yeah, right? <laughs> that was a great line. And, and, and I, I love that because I, like at that point with with Deckard, does it even matter, right? And, and that's that's I think one of the beautiful things about this uh, about who you have Deckard become uh, is that it doesn't it doesn't make any difference. It's re- it's real enough. 
you know, it's, it's real enough for companionship. It's real enough for this, this thing that follows me around and that I have to feed and throw whiskey on the floor for, you know? So (laughs) I, yeah, I, it's, I, I love that about, uh, about his character that we see he's, he's haggard, he's worn down. Um, he's, he's as world weary as he was, uh, but at the same time, he's he's changed. He's grown. And I, I think that he's learned something about himself. And, and that conversation they have back and forth when he finally says, you know, sometimes to love someone, you have to be a stranger to them. Yeah. And it's 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 hard because, you know, that's it's absolutely wrong. Except in this like one pocket case where, yes, yeah, actually, yeah. that's <laughs> it's probably right right now. It's absolutely wrong every other situation. But like in this particular situation, yeah, that's probably the best thing he can do is just not know what's going on with the child. So I I, I love the, the blasters. I have to go back and talk about the props here because I think this is yeah. the best time to um, how iconic everything is. So we get back to the iconic blaster that um, Deckard had in the original. But Kay's blaster is really cool looking in its own right. It's uh, kind of a modification on that same idea of like a big gun with a barrel. And um, I, I love seeing the two of them kind of interchanging here with, with what they're shooting. And then Kay ends up with um, Deckard's blaster afterward after this oh, really i didn't yeah. notice that uh, <laughs> yeah. to watch it again <laughs> so uh he, he ends up he ends up with it and that's that's in his pocket i think all the way through the end of the movie i'm pretty sure that i don't think he loses it at any point but uh but yeah he picks it up like after the explosion decker drops it and he picks it up and that's what he uses to shoot the guys uh that are trying to take uh take decker off so yeah it's kind of like this awesome passing of the torch down to this uh this new guy uh, so yeah, I, I, I love, I love everything about this, this scene, uh, especially when, um, when they get in the fight and they're at the end of the fight and, and Decker's just like, yeah, we, we could keep doing this or we could just have a drink. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, yeah, that's pretty iconic of that. So the last, the last three that I think we got to go through and, um, move one of them around in my notes here. Uh, the last three that I think we have to go through are. All K, because I think we, we see this movie really through K's eyes and they're really important. And I'm going to hit a big one first, go back to a smaller one and then hit the one that I think is really the, the central uh, relationship of the movie. But uh, K goes to visit this memory uh, creator who's she's fabricating memories for uh, replicants. And it's Dr. Anna Staline. And he goes to meet her because he has a question about this memory that has surfaced in his mind with the little wooden horse. And he wants to know how you can tell a memory is real. And I love this scene because when you watch the movie a second time, you realize that the question that he's asking is not the question that she's answering. (laughs) Right. And, And that's kind of what sets him off on this path of being confused about the fact that maybe he is the child that that is being talked about here. And so all of these little clues have have led up to this point. But he goes to visit uh, Dr. Staline and, and she is a, she sees his memory like there's like, I guess, a memory scanning device. And she sees his memory and her and, and he asks, how can you tell if it's real? And he said she says to him, uh, this one, it, it, someone lived this memory and. And he says that he knows it's real and she's crying because you, you, you feel like she's crying because it's like it's illegal. But what she's really crying for is that she's seeing her own memory. 
right. like a real memory that she's placed inside his head. I, I thought she was crying just because, you know, the, she, she was being empathetic with this memory. Right. But I mm-hmm. had like no clue that it was hers. That, that was a yeah. really effective. Twist. yes oh man it was it was so well done to put to put her in there and to have this and it kind of convinces you the audience that that he's right about the fact that he is yeah. the child and and yeah and so well played because it's it's very subtle like everything's true there's enough there's no lie that's that's stated at this point she doesn't lie to him and say yes that's your memory uh she she says yes this is a, this is a real memory and i think she's sitting on the other side of that glass knowing what she's doing to him and and this is where you watch this movie a couple times and you start to go what is the purpose here like why did she place this memory in a replicant's head and yeah that was one of my lingering questions at the end of the movie why and and here's the thing you can't know that that's not a shared memory that all the replicants have because she works with wallace core and she uploads a memory and you know Maybe this is just an easy throwaway memory that she puts, you know, she puts into every single replicant. And maybe it's to try and to try and do exactly what ends up happening. Right. So she her purpose is to try and push this boundary and break the wall down. And what, what the other thing I was thinking of in connection with that is like, don't they say at some point that K is basically a perfect genetic match of her? That like because there there was supposedly a, a boy and a girl, and one is a copy and one's the real child. So I got this idea. That, okay, so K is the genetic copy. So he's the replicant. Well, and but he so- says that's not possible, and I and I think I, I think what you're seeing there is just the the obfuscation that okay. that, that Deckard pulled. Yeah, because oh, they talk about okay. that. When uh when he meets the other replicants or kind of in the underground resistance, that's what gets uh-huh. revealed to him is that this is all part of layers upon layers upon layers of protecting her. A bodyguard mm-hmm. of lies, as as Winston Churchill would say. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's just the whole that whole plot is done so well and a lot of it has to do with the acting and the the writing. Um but you feel so bad for Kay when he finds out that he's not. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because his whole his whole hero's journey is disrupted. (laughs) Right. Right. And and, but but then I think the the really beautiful thing from that is that he very quickly rises from the ashes and renews his purpose uh, in a way that nobody could have predicted. Right. And And I think that's one of the beautiful things about the end of this film is that you've sat through through nearly three hours of like a really emotionally fraught film and there's a payoff at the end that's that's huge like you really feel like the main character gets somewhere and it's the the end is sad like there's a very like you're not really sure if he lives or dies but yeah but the point is that he's grown he's changed he's he's taken some autonomy and some control of his own destiny and created this thing that he wanted to create that maybe nobody else could have predicted. Nobody else could have known uh, was even possible. And he did it and he made it happen. And I, and I love that about that end that he's given where he, he does have that taken away from him, right? The, the, the destiny of being that child is taken away from him, but 
it's also it also frees him to be whatever he wants to be. He doesn't have to be a replicant anymore. He doesn't have to be subject to any laws or anything. He can just do he can follow his own path. So that brings us to one of my other um, relationships in the film that I think is really interesting and it'll bring us into our final uh, conversation that I think I, I like I want to end on because our, our final character conversation that I want to end on. But the relationship between Kay and his alter ego, Joe, which is the moniker that's given to him by uh-huh. his uh, by his joy. Um, and watching through this time, I was like really trying to pick up on that name and how many times it's used. And, and the the cool thing about it is, is that. Um, so Joy, who's his his personal uh ai uh holographic wife uh, holographic wife essentially right uh picks up on all of this stuff that's happening and says that since he's now a real person like he's a real human as as he's starting to feel that uh she gives him the name joe she says i'm gonna call you joe and it's such a disappointing name like when you hear it (laughs) even in the thing you're like what's the difference between K and Joe? You know, it's really, there's not much difference between those two things. Um, everybody already calls him K. They don't call him by his whole, his whole name. But then when he goes and presents himself to Deckard, he offers his number and Deckard says, that's not a name. And so he offers the name Joe. And that's the only name that, that Deckard knows him by so much so that even at the end of the film, when they're, uh, when they're closing out, and they go to visit um, Deckard's daughter. He refers to him as Joe. Yeah. And it's jarring because at that point we know he's not a, a human, right? But Deckard is still affording him that reality of, of giving him a name rather than, uh, rather than a number. And I debated really hard whether or not we were going to call him Joe or K as we go through this thing. <laughs> I think it's only, yeah. <laughs> it's only justifiable to call him K because that's really, that's who he is. And that's what, what, what he ends up being by the, the time. end. Yeah. And I think he really owns it by the end of the movie, too. Like, he really owns Kay yeah. by the end of the movie. And, and I like that for him, too. So um, d- d- this brings me to, to my big question that's going to kind of lead us into the, to the final conversation. Joy mm-hmm. and who she is and what she represents in this film. And in the, the most bizarre way, she's this character that's just very tangent to everything that's happening she's an ai she's a hologram she's very clearly a pleasure model of something that's been that's very highly consumeristic uh that that we don't even get a sense of that though until halfway through the film and we don't get a sense of how big a deal that is until like the final quarter of the film when all of this stuff is stripped away from him and he he is confronted with how she comes up with the name basically for him but here's my question to you guys and this is something that my wife and i are still going back and forth (laughs) after watching this movie is how autonomous do you feel like joy really is the way i would view it she's a program she's a very sophisticated program even a very very sophisticated program but to, to me she's the same as the doctor from star trek voyager you know, she's mm. not truly a living being. It's funny, I, I think she's less human than the replicants are. Because the way I see it, the, the replicants are just humans 
that are birthed from test tubes instead of, you know, normal human procreation. You know, they're still humans. They still have human DNA. They still have souls. Whereas Joy is just a very sophisticated machine. Interesting. And I think, yeah, her her character is a really an interesting juxtaposition against this whole question of what does it mean to be alive and what does it mean to be human? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so you see like throughout the movie, and I think I, I think I tend to agree with you, Thomas, but she does all these things that she knows will please him because that's what she's designed to do. Right. And even when she gets to the point where, because she's a hologram, they cannot physically be together. She finds a way around that to kind of fake mm-hmm. it. But even, even then it's, it's not really her and it's not, it's not real. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think she's an interesting character because she, you, you can bounce those ideas off of her. But I think overall she doesn't really love him because she's not capable of loving because she is just a computer program. Now, see, this was my thought too. And, and this is where I was, where I was coming from when I was starting this conversation with my wife, because I was like, she's essentially like the, the whole concept of this program is uh, see what you want to see, hear what you want to hear. Right. That's like, the, the the shtick that runs with it but and my wife threw this in there she said there's a very key moment with her character that you have to take into consideration and that's when she makes the self-sacrifice of telling him to break her off from the network and she very clearly in that moment knows that that's going to be her end that's her demise is is being broken from the network and there's no backup of her. She's going to be in his pocket at that point. And that is not something that she does as a sense of pleasing him out of like, that's what he wants to hear. That's what he, you know, uh, she does it because she has developed some sense of autonomy as well and has pushed past that boundary of just being a program and is now something more than that. And I, and I think, you know, Thomas, you brought up the, the soul question, which is which they such address a in the movie. good question. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they do like uh, that, that scene where he's talking with, uh, with Lieutenant Joshi and he's, he says, you know, I've never killed something with a soul. And right. Which was like, like, I took issue with that because he's like, oh, well, you, you have to be born to have a soul. And I'm like, well, no, you don't. Like, <laughs> you know, like, in my view, the replicants have souls they're humans they have human dna they're just manufactured from scratch instead of you know being the product of normal procreation but it it, it's funny that like they in order to objectify them they put that thing like oh you don't have souls because you're not born like normal people yeah well and then and then i think i pushed it further like talking uh, thinking about this idea of joy and and what she is because there's some level of of like a program that's just there to please. But then also there's the, that whole scene with him breaking her off of the network too. the the big concern is that they're going to be able to get into her memories. Right. With him. And that's something that he always has a problem with throughout the film, too, is is the memories that he has are not his. And he's he's aware of that until the point where he's confused about maybe they are mine. You know, maybe they are my memories. Maybe they are real memories that I really had. And that and, and, and like you were saying, Jack, that it's heartbreaking when we see him being told that that's not him. And when it settles into the, the rebellion leader's uh, mind, she, she realizes, oh, you thought 
you were the child yeah yeah that you know we all wish we were but but no like he really did actually have reason to believe that that was him and then to have it just stripped from you in that moment is it's gut-wrenching but it's interesting because it's all about those memories and the odd thing here is is that we're willing to give them a soul because they have a physical form but they have someone else's memories Whereas it's harder to give joy a soul, whereas the thing she is is a product of her own memories. Like she is truly the product of of the memories that she's collected, but she doesn't have a physical being. And so like the the questions that raise like it just shakes the whole foundation of what you're trying to think about when you're talking about the replicants and and who they are and whether or not they have souls. And it goes, it digs really deep into the, the stuff that I love talking about. Like when we start talking about artificial intelligence and whether or not it can have a soul and, and what that's going to be like and, and how we're going to have to, to wrestle with that. Because I feel like that's something that we will have to, to wrestle with. Hmm. And there's precedent that this, this, this is the thing that I really want to like encourage everybody with. There's precedent for this question too, because when the, when the explorers came across from Europe and they encountered people in the Americas who had never heard the word of God, there were a lot of questions about whether or not they could possibly have souls. Right. Like why would God have abandoned these people so thoroughly that they had never heard uh, of, of him at all. And so when, when the priests came across initially with those explorers, there was a lot of debate about whether or not, we should minister to them. There, there were a lot of atrocities committed because of that, right? Because, you know, like we're saying here, you could dehumanize them by saying, well, they just don't have souls that obviously they were forsaken by God. We can forsake them too, you know, but that's not the case. Like we had to, we had to really go through and, and think like, what is it that, what does it mean that these people are here separated in this way? And I think you have a lot of similar questions here that, that rise up with these, this idea of fabricated humans. Yeah, definitely. Or like, you know, if if we were to discover intelligent alien life, it would be the same mm-hmm. thing, you know, like, well, they're, you know, they're, they're separated from us on another planet. But, you know, like, if, if they share our intelligence, but, you know, they would still be biological. And that's the thing that the replicants are biological, whereas joy, like, joy is so clearly a non biological entity that I find it difficult to credit the idea of her having a soul like even though she she appears to be to have you know emergent behaviors and be like you say kind of semi-autonomous and make a a self-sacrificial decision i'm like when like it's like when would your laptop ever sacrifice itself for you i mean like so there is that that, that interesting question yeah it's a there's a lot of uh interesting metaphysical questions that go along with that with uh what does it mean to be alive and is by well because the, the funny thing is like as catholics we believe in angels and they're not biological but they have souls that's so true. that's obviously mm-hmm. not a prerequisite for being for being ensouled so i i know there's a lot of theologians who tend to fall on the side of an ai could never be truly sentient but i i think it's more of an open question than we probably realize yeah you know thinking about it it, it may be just simply a different kind of safety than what biological entities have. Well, and that's why I think I, I really do think like the, the most important impactful scene in this movie 
is actually the scene where Joy cheats with Mar- with uh, Mariette. And she she uses a physical form to be able to interact with uh, Kay. And and I really like I hone in on that scene because it it, it does all of the things like it's the whole movie in a small microcosm where you take the desire to be real and the lack of ability to ever break that boundary for whatever reason, either it's, it's K not being able to have an actual childhood or it's uh, joy, not being able to have a physical form or even uh, Wallace not being able to create life that they can then create life. Right. There, there are so many characters in this movie that lack the ability to fully actualize themselves as real in, in, the, in the way that they phrase it, right? And then we see that it, ultimately it doesn't matter. Those characters are able to actualize themselves, not in these kind of cheap ways like, like Joy does with uh, Mariette, but in the sacrifice that she makes for Kay of like pulling yourself yeah. off the network. That's or, when she's the most human. Not exactly. when she's inhabiting Marriott's body. Bingo. And, and I think that's what's beautiful about this movie is that we have those moments for so many of these characters. Like we get that moment for Kay later after he's realized, you know, the, the kind of farce that he's in. He still makes the decision to go and not just kill Deckard, but make it look like Deckard died and then take Deckard to his daughter. And that's that's his choice separate from the, th- the things that he's been told he has to do. Um, and it's that kind of sense of like fulfilling purpose of like of of creating a purpose for yourself there is no destiny that we have we just have to rise to the occasion we're given and i love that sense in this movie like i think that's really that that whole scene of of her inhabiting marriott and then making the sacrifice for Kay. how those two things kind of dovetail together it's beautiful. Like it's really just a, a, such a great image of the whole record of like, of what does it mean to be human that this, the, the original one and this one ask so well. Yeah. And I, I think actually another probably less important than this, but another kind of key scene with, with joy and K is when they're looking through the DNA records and joy mm-hmm. comments, look, you know, m- mere data makes a man you know, A, T, C, G, you know, the different, you know, uh, I forget what they're called, but, you know, the, the little letters of DNA. And, you know, and she's like, for, you know, for you, it's four. For me, it's two, ones and zeros. You know, but clearly, in the case of humans, it's not just mere data that makes the man. We're more than the sum of her parts. We're emergent from that. Mm-hmm. And I think, I guess the point the movie is probably trying to make is, well, so is she. She's more mm-hmm. than the sum of her parts of the ones and zeros, which is it's a good. I, and that's why I feel I, like, you know, like Jack was saying, I feel this is really an open question that is that needs some more expo- exploration. Right. And it, it might not it might not ever be an issue. Like, I think that there's there's still there's plenty of computer scientists that think that we'll never achieve like an, a true artificial intelligence. And and we don't have reason to believe that we will. We, we are creating very intelligent machines, but they are very specifically like you said uh, thomas they're very they're the programs right that's what, right. That's what they are but and they still look you know, and behave machine-like mm-hmm. yeah. and, I, and i think that 
I, I mean, I'm intrigued to see, you know, as we go further down that road. And I've had, I've had this discussion with a couple of people. I think, interestingly, the first AI that's going to wake up, if we ever have one wake up, it's going to be a car. So uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to ponder the the reality of a car having a soul. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, go back to our Herbie, you know, <laughs> cars, go, the Disney's cars comes to life. Yeah. So and but that's I think that's something that we're going to, you know, if if it's going to happen, I think that's really where we're going to hit it first is that that sense of like awareness of self and uh, of kind of where you are and who you are and that you exist and that you are a thing. Uh, but still, we, and, and I'm I think, more worried about replicants in the future of <laughs> yeah. us creating people from scratch mm-hmm. to use as servants or slaves. Like, oh, well, what is that one line in the movie that like, you know, we, we couldn't stand enslaving people anymore as long as they weren't, you know, just built from scratch. Mm-hmm. I, I, I forget who says it. I, it might be Wallace. It's Wallace who says it's that. Wallace, yeah, he talks yeah. about how we've lost our stomach for slavery. Yeah, that, which exactly. is funny because then yeah. you go to the orphanage and you know, well, there oh, you yeah, go. It's still, still, yeah. still very real, <laughs> and those are real kids. They're not replicants. Those are mm-hmm. real kids. So it's, it's so like very I real. worry like that that could be like you know with, with gene editing and you know designer babies mm-hmm. and such that there's this push for you know more kind of genetic engineering to either create. Some people were like, you know, the super rich can afford to be upgraded and given essentially superpowers, or we can create, you know, a servile, you know, race of servants to do the menial tasks that humans don't want to do anymore. And that that's what makes these movies a little bit scary, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. or are we well, seeing definitely... in, into the future, you know, through a mirror darkly, you know, like, right. Yeah. And that's, I think, you know, it harkens back to, um, to, to the old books uh aldous huxley I, I forget the name of the book brave new world that's the one there we go yeah. i knew one of you were gonna <laughs> i knew one of you would have it for me uh yeah so it's uh yeah brave new world where it's it, everyone's edited everyone is designed and um you know that's it's scary this is something that we've been thinking about for ages yeah. and i i'm very glad that eugenics is not part of our modern discussion openly and directly that's the thing though it it is it's just more nefarious like right even with uh ways that genes can be manipulated like with uh like artificial uh like in vitro fertilization and all that like Mm -hmm. it's not as nakedly sinister but it still is the commodification of human life yes yeah Turning people into commodities into something that can be commercialized almost. Yeah, it can be exactly the way you wanted a mail order baby, you know. Like, and another great movie about that one is Gattaca. If you guys have you guys seen that one, that's a that's a good one. No, yeah. I haven't. I have oh, to, I have to yeah, check I that out. Definitely recommend that one. Uh, yeah, it asks a lot of the same questions. Same questions yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd like to end with the final scene because I think that's it's the best way to wrap this movie up. Um, so we have this big fight that's, that's absolutely like like you said, Jack, the fights in this movie are, are really meaningful, really powerful. They're about the characters. And it's uh, Kay just learned that he's not actually this replicate child. He goes and he uh, attacks the caravan that's trying to take Deckard off world and kills everyone except for love, wrecks the car and then 
gets in a fight with love right on the shore uh, as the car is being drug out into into the ocean uh, right right beneath the wall, <laughs> which there's so much symbolism in everything that happens yeah. here. <laughs> but, but the fight is so brilliant because it's like you, you get to see two replicants that are roughly at the top of their game uh, fight and it's kind of no holds barred. They're really brutal. They forego weapons mostly. And, but, but the, the passion behind the way that they're fighting and why they're fighting and the lines that they deliver, especially when love uh, beats him and, and says that she's the best. And you, you realize that everything she's doing, she feels like she has to prove herself because she's not good enough for Wallace. It's just such a gut-wrenching moment and and so good. And then Kay manages to, you know, overcome that and actually defeat her in the end uh, and save Deckard. And then Deckard's free to go because as far as anybody knows, Deckard's dead. And so the first thing Kay does is deliver him to his daughter. And before we get to see, like, the real ramifications of that reunion. There's not even a word exchanged between them, at least not from Deckard's side. That's the end of the movie. <laughs> it's yeah. just, yeah. How do you guys feel about the end? <laughs> I thought it was great. This is, I didn't want something that's has a nice little bow put on it because you can't do that with this kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, it just, it asks more questions and it's one of those things you got to watch again and again and think about. It's not a movie that's going to, answer the questions for you like we didn't even touch on this but the fact that they don't answer whether or not Deckard actually is a replicant which I'm yes. very glad they didn't because that that's not, we don't need an answer to that yeah I don't want an I answer to that I was so yeah. afraid they were going to answer it and I'm like please don't and when they didn't I was like perfect that's great like leave it unanswered no they gave us a Blade Runner that was a replicant that's what they needed to do yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it just wasn't Deckard as far as we know like as far as we know <laughs> not sure uh yeah and so i think i, I think that's that that's the brilliant uh moment at the end it's just that there's a lot of open questions and and there are even more open questions than there were at the end of the first movie <laughs> yeah because i think this what, movie what takes <laughs> yeah it's like we said at the beginning this movie takes all those concepts and expands upon them and re- really handles them much more deftly i feel like than the original yeah, it's 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 able to I it, it breathes so much. And, I, and I, I joke about this because I feel like there are so many scenes literally where that's what we're doing is we're listening to someone breathe. But the film itself just has this sense of drawing breath to it all the way through where it swells and it calms and it's just got that like ebb and flow. Um, and there's there's always a barrier between us and the answers. And the beautiful thing is, is that at the end of that movie, at the end of the movie, that barrier is still there. But that's kind of the point, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it takes its audience very seriously, much like the first movie did. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, part of the reason why I just think it, it's great. It's fantastic. And, you know, not enough movies are done that way. No, definitely. And it's funny. Um, I think you mentioned uh, that you'd not seen Arrival, uh, Thomas, and you have seen right. Arrival, Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that movie, I, I saw that one and I like it fine, but I feel like you can definitely see where the studio 
got their hands in it because there's so many weird cuts in that movie. There's a, there's one scene in particular that's like a very long just voiceover where the Amy Adams character is just explaining oh, what's right. going on. And yeah. I'm like, this movie, if you just cut out that voiceover, this would have made this like 10 times better. So I almost feel like this movie was him with the leeway to do what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Dune. I think he's got that. He's got that star power now where he can make the movie he wants to make. Very. Yeah. But yeah. And I, I, I don't know if uh, I think I, I compared him before, before we started the podcast to Terrence Malick. And that's where I really, I really feel he fits in that kind of vein where the movie is so artistically done uh, that it really transcends just being a, a cinema pick, right? Where it's like, you know, oh, and, and, the, and the beautiful thing about it, though, is that like this is a movie you can take somebody to who's not really like a high art movie and you can sit down with them and watch it and they'll still enjoy it. Like they, they might feel like it's slow and they might feel like if like uh, Ridley Scott and say, well, you probably could have ha- cut half an hour of that movie and it would have been OK, <laughs> you know, but they'll still get it. Right. And then but then if you're like really like into film and the way that film's done, like you see this, the, the art, the artistry that goes into making this and all this, the symbolism. And man, I can watch this movie. I, I seriously have watched it four times and every single time I've gotten something new. Like it, every time you watch it, you can watch it from a new character's perspective and get something out of it. And then you can go back through and just watch it for the plot points and get something new out of it and just go back through and watch it for the setting and the, and the scenery and, and why certain shots are done from certain in certain places. It is just a really, really good movie. And on that same token, this is a movie you could take someone to who is not a sci fi fan and they could still appreciate it as a right. good movie because it, it yeah. kind of transcends that that label. Right. In, in much the same way the new Dune has for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's about the characters. It really is about the, yeah. the the who's who's in it, what they're doing, what's happening to them. So, yeah, I like it. I, I really think that Denis Villeneuve has left his mark, not just on film, but on sci-fi as a genre. Mm-hmm. And as a sci-fi fan, you know, if he does more movies like this, I mean, I know we're going to get Dune Part 2. He's even... I think hinted at maybe a Doom Part Three that'll cover Doom Messiah. If if he does, like I'm I'm just down for anything science fiction that he does. And he's also uh, he's also adapting uh, Rendezvous at Rama, the Arthur C. Clarke novel. Oh, really? Oh, so, I'm very excited for that. Then. He's the perfect director for that book. Yeah, yeah. I, I I haven't read the book, but I know enough about it that I am totally down with that. Directing yeah, choice. And I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I'll tell you, if, if if these can be the if these can be for future sci-fi, what Star Wars was for sci-fi, you know, in the 80s after yeah. it, I'm I'm in. And let's let's have tons more like this, please. <laughs> yeah. And just as as a movie, I was just very impressed by it. Enjoyed it even more than the first one. This the, this does what a good sequel should do. And I, I think that's my final thought on it. Jack, anything from you? Uh, yeah, just echoing what Thomas said. It's a, just a fantastic movie. It, it's honestly probably one of my favorite movies now, just because it's so rich and there's so much you can get out of it. Uh, yeah. And I really think that it, it builds upon the original and is really the best version of the Blade Runner story that we've gotten. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree with both of you. And I'm, yeah, the more I watch it, the more it moves up in my in my ranks too. I'm, it, I liked it, 
but rewatching it, it's just it's it's elevated. It's so good. Like I really, really love this movie. It, it does everything. The beats are hit correctly. You know, the the cinematography is awesome. The coloring is so good. So yeah, I'm hundred percent in. I, I'll watch anything Denny Villeneuve puts out. That's one hundred percent my um. I'm, I'm in. I'm along for the ride, like you, know, like you said, Thomas. If he if he does it, yeah, and that that that's a big statement for me. If he's going to do a third Dune movie that's covering the Messiah parts yeah. of the story, because I, you know, I can stop after the first book and I'm done with with Dune. <laughs> <laughs> so if, I'm still on board if he's interested in doing the rest of it. But you know, that's a At that's least a big up task. To Messiah, which. I've read Dude Messiah and I thought that oh, was an okay sequel. I know that the ones after that, like Children of Dune and Beyond, get a little odd, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it gets weird. It gets weird fast. A little. <laughs> a little. Yeah. All right. So uh, that is it from us. Uh, what did you think, listener, about Denny Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049? Be sure to email us or comment on our Facebook or Twitter page and let us know. Uh, you can email us any feedback by finding StarQuest on Facebook at facebook.com slash Media and on Twitter at SQPN. And especially if you are someone who watched this movie without having seen the first movie, I'd love to hear from you because I'm really interested in that perspective. If you haven't yet, join our Discord. Uh, there's a lot of good discussions going on over there. You can check that out at our StarQuest uh, website. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show in your preferred podcast aggregator or subscribe to us on YouTube. To find any previous episodes of Secrets of Movies and TV Shows or to find another member of our fantastic podcast family, please visit sqpn.com. Once again, Thomas Salerno, thank you for joining me for The Secrets of Blade Runner. Thank you, Thomas. It's been great. And Jack Barazzini, thank you also. Thanks. Once again, I'm Thomas Sanherho. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV on StarQuest. Quest.